Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Welcome again to the second episode of The Lovable Podcast. This is Kelly, and I have just one quick reminder before we jump right into this week's episode. Remember, this isn't just a podcast, it's also sort of like a global book club. I'm recording the episodes with you on Facebook Live. If you like what you hear today and you want to participate in future live conversations, whether it's to simply listen, to add your thoughts, or to ask some questions, we'd love to have you join us. You can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com, and sign up in the right sidebar for my weekly newsletter. On weeks we're recording, it'll contain a reminder and a link to my Facebook page where you can join the conversation. I couldn't possibly know what to expect with this first conversation, but I'm thrilled with how it turned out. I think you're going to get to benefit not only from the content I share, but also from the wisdom, the insight, and the curiosity of a bunch of very lovable people. So let's get into it. Here is week one of the year of listening, loving, and living, entitled, Doing is the Enemy of Becoming. This is uh, Kelly Flanagan. Uh, I am clinical psychologist, author, um, blogger, husband, father, and now a podcaster. And today we are uh, starting out uh, recording the second episode of the Lovable Podcast here together live. We are going to first start out by just recap, recapping very briefly the structure of the companion book and how it maps onto Lovable, uh, and then we're going to get into reading uh, week one of the companion book uh, entitled Doing is the Enemy of Becoming, and we're going to talk about the practice for the week, uh, and we're going to have discussion around both of those, so I'm looking forward to it. And why don't we, why don't we begin there? So, um, so. I published this book called Lovable back in March. If you've listened to the first episode, you know an awful lot about that. So I'm just going to read a brief excerpt from it to sort of situate the companion book and what we're doing today. Uh, So this is from the introduction to Lovable. The backstory. Over the years, I've come to believe most of what we call life is really just backstory, people, places, and pain that set the scene for our story to really begin. Here, we'll explore the frustrating and fruitless ways we spend our days trying to find worthiness outside of ourselves and we'll begin to consider a blessed possibility. The time we've spent suspecting we're no good and looking for someone or something that will finally make us feel good enough is all just staging for our first act. It's the dark moment before the dawn of our awakening. Act one, worthiness. The first act of life is an invitation to pause, to stop doing and striving and proving, and to become present to ourselves once again. It's a chance to glimpse and to greet the worthy little one who has been living within us from the beginning, It's an opportunity to rest into the soul we've forgotten, this good and beautiful thing we were before life started convincing us we were something else. It's a long and slow embrace of the worthiness we've possessed all along. So when we talk about this companion book, 
Uh, and we talk about the year of listening, loving, and living, as it's called. These first four months of the year, the months of listening, really map on to Act 1 from Lovable. This idea of beginning to um, cease all of our striving and searching and trying to create a self and beginning to, to learn how to settle into the self that is already present to us and already available to us. Um, and, and so that's what we're going to begin doing today. Remember, the central idea here is that we came into the world worthy, we forgot this when we experienced shame, and then believing we weren't good enough on the inside, we set out to prove we were good enough through relationships and accomplishments. And so the first part of returning to who we are is beginning to just let go of that, that desperate search to prove that we're good enough and to settle into the fact, remember and reclaim the fact that we've been good enough all along. Um, now, I should say one more thing before I jump in. When I first put the companion book together, uh, there, the, the exercises around rest, breathing, stillness, they were sort of scattered throughout the first four months of the year. And my wife gave me the editorial feedback. She said, basically, dude, uh, you need to front load all those. The things that you're asking people to do, to pay attention to the voice of shame within them, and even more importantly, to pay attention to the voice of grace, that can't be done unless there's been space cultivated in our lives for stillness, for listening, for attending, for contemplating. Um, and so you, get, you have to help people do that right away. Um, and so what you'll discover in this first week and in the next few weeks is that a lot of that is front-loaded. Um, the first month is an awful lot about breathing, about rest, about stillness, and about learning how to not do. Um, so I'm just giving you that warning that there will be a few weeks like that. Um, it's sort of uh, sort of countercultural, and uh, and that to me is why it's going to be helpful. Part one, listening, identity recognition. I can only look for something that I have to some degree already found. How can I search for beauty and truth unless that beauty and truth are already known to me in the depth of my heart? It seems that all of us human beings have deep inner memories of the paradise that we have lost. Maybe the word innocence is better than the word paradise. We were innocent before we started feeling guilty. We were in the light before we entered into the darkness. We were at home before we started to search for a home. Deep in the recesses of our minds and hearts, there lies hidden the treasure we seek. Henry Nouwen. Week one, doing is the enemy of becoming. I want to begin by telling you the simplest secret to discovering your truest self. Here it is. There is no secret. Because your true self is like a beach ball pushed down deep under the water. You only need to take your hands off it, and it will rush to the surface. The real question is, how are you pushing it down, and how do you take your hands off? I awoke on a frosty November morning in the simple solitude of a Franciscan retreat center. No alarm clock. No kids poking my forehead, no breakfast to prepare, no requirements whatsoever. Only the purpose of my weekend, to embrace more fully my truest self. The morning started simply enough, but as I settled into the quiet space, I felt a familiar and unwelcome pang in my gut. It's a sense of urgency. It's my little propeller of accomplishment. It's my drive to achieve. It's the ghost of shame haunting my mind, whispering, get it done, Kelly. Discover something meaningful and beautiful. Accomplish something big. Your worth depends upon it. It can devastate a moment or a day or a week or a year, and it can certainly devastate a whole weekend retreat. Who am I? There is an intuitive kind of wisdom implicit in this question uttered in hearts, in homes, and therapy offices across the globe. Not what could I be 
or what will I become, but who am I? A question implying the answer is already present. And deep in our souls, we know this to be true. I am already here somewhere. My becoming is really an unearthing, an excavation of what already is. Our true self is here now, but it has been pushed beneath the surface by the hands of time and pain and fear. We began this life inhabiting a sense of worth, born into light and innocence. But from the moment of our first cries, people were getting us all wrong. The people we loved were like mirrors in a funhouse, returning distorted images of who we are, images distorted by their own pain and brokenness. It made us want to hide our true self. On occasion, we cautiously, timidly revealed ourselves to others, and occasionally, they acted like judge and jury. And the pain of that kind of shame can split us in two. The true self is pushed safely into the dark depths, and we quickly, resiliently, learn to replace it with a more acceptable self. We wear this false self like a mask, all the while sitting on this undulating beach ball of the true self, trying to keep it buried beneath the surface. We push our true self down with two thin bodies, trendy clothing, aisles of makeup, the biggest houses and shiniest cars and trophies and crowds and bank accounts and lovers and righteousness and anger and perfection. We push our true self down with so much doing and so much stuff for so long that we eventually forget we've pushed it down at all. We mistake what remains above the waterline, the stuff we let everybody see, for who we are. As the aching in my gut began to grow on that November morning, I stopped and uttered a simple prayer. Show me who I am. Silence. I said it again. More silence. I said it a third time. Several more moments of silence followed, and then finally this thought. There is a beautiful secluded lake about three minutes away, and all I want out of this entire weekend is to walk the three-mile path around it. I want to walk it slowly with nowhere to go except back to the beginning. I want to walk it mindfully, with nothing to accomplish but a still, slow breath. I'm quite simply starved for the experience. So I put down my reading and picked up my coat. I walked out of the building and I searched for the entrance to the forest path that would deliver me to the lake. I spotted it, a worn opening framed by stark trees and brown crumpled leaves. I took my first step onto the path, the crunching of leaves beneath my feet, every breath crisp in my lungs and I felt relief well up like a fountain within me. This is who I am, a country boy raised in the woods, his winters marked by a stark, barren landscape, an introverted kid, his heart rooted in silence and solitude, an innocent young man hoping only for peace and joy and simplicity. This is who I am. How often am I pushing this under the water of life like a beach ball, pressing it down with insecurity and the need to achieve the compulsion to prove myself all over again. How often do I clean up one more mess while my children are inviting me to play, inviting me to be myself? How often do I make the quiet spaces of life into another final exam, trying to accomplish something that will finally prove my worth? How often is my true self suffocated like a beach ball beneath the waters of life, pushed down by all my hands of shame? Our truest self is a beach ball submerged by our hands of shame, and it's ready to rise to the surface. Are you exhausted by the games you play? Are you absolutely aching to end the hiding of who you really are? Are you ready to take a courageous swipe at all the falsehood? Are you ready to remove your hands and watch as your true self shoots to the surface? When we step into the fullness of who we are, it can be really scary. 
all sorts of mass rushes to the surface with it. Deep grief, awful fears, festering wounds, embarrassing truths, all kinds of flaws and blemishes. But with it also comes bravery and belonging, passion and purpose, and relief, sweet relief from the pressure of the hiding. With it comes the grace of a beautifully broken creature. With it comes people who truly know us and want to be with us anyway. With it comes the freedom to play and love and live. Are you ready to lift your hands? So that is the conclusion of the um, week, week one reading. Uh, doing is the enemy of becoming. Um, I'm going to scroll back and I'm going to pick up some comments here. I saw some rolling in. Uh, Nancy Gathers uh, writes, this is so timely in my life. Um, Nancy, I'm glad this is coming at the right time. Um, Heather said the wife is right. She was right to front load all of the, the, the listening and the stillness and the silence. Dika writes, this stuff is too deep. It's making me emotional. Um, I'm afraid this podcast is going to make us all a little bit emotional. Uh, it was hard for me to not feel the emotion, even just remembering. And that, that story I just told, what happened to me, gosh, seven years ago. Uh, and it's hard for me not to feel that emotion still. Um, and it, what's so remarkable to me is that as I, I drove the kids to their carpool, you know, I drove the carpool this morning. I'm coming back into our neighborhood and I rolled down the window on the car and I could hear the uh, the wheels of the car sort of click clacking over the dry autumn leaves, and it brought such a tremendous sense of peace to me. Um, one of the places I was most peaceful as a little kid was walking in my grandparents' woods, um, it, it, particularly in the fall. I loved it, and and so when I remember this experience from seven years ago, giving myself permission to go out into the woods, and just be that kid again walking in the woods. Um, I think the sense of peace that arises from that is the sense of, of reconnecting with who you really are and doing what you really want to do in the world and, and marching to the rhythm of, of the, the beat that is going on in your own soul. Maybe nobody else's. Maybe nobody else this morning would get emotional driving into the neighborhood and hearing the, the dry leaves under the tires, but this soul does, and that's good enough. Um, so I think there's going to be some emotions uh, with this this podcast as we, as we get reconnected. Um, and, and the biggest emotion might simply be relief, just relief at being able to, to reconnect with those parts of us that we, we pushed down so long ago because we thought they weren't good enough. Kim writes, I'm crying. Kim, thanks for your vulnerability. Steve writes, planning to lead a small group of seniors through this material beginning next month. Thanks for it. Oh, Steve, that, um, I'm, I'm grateful to hear that um, and honored to hear it. Thanks for doing that. And uh, please feel free to reach out to me if, uh, if there's anything I can do to help. I'd be glad to. Julia writes, buying into the narratives we present to others, <laughs> burying so much in the process. Ugh, the beach ball is a useful image. Um, yeah, I think there's, um, I, I think there's a little bit of, uh, of relief in that image because I know, for instance, when people come to therapy, when I went to therapy for the first time, I thought, I thought that what, what you were doing was this sort of hard, arduous, strenuous work of trying to figure out who you are. And so to discover that who you are wants to be lived, that's what it's here for. 
um, your true self wants to be lived and uh, left to its own devices it will be lived um, it's your natural state it's the unnatural process of believing that that true self isn't good enough and then feeling like we have to hide it because of that um, that we have to undo um, and so that's why we start out this this year with a process of undoing um, and we begin to s discover that becoming our truest self gets a lot easier when we stop doing the things that prevent us from simply being that um, so yeah, I think that process is really important, I think, and thanks for that, Julie. Jonathan writes, in college, one of my mantras was, who am I? Where am I? Where am I going? The slow process of looking at who I was in the minute, in the hour, in the year in life. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, the, so the introduction, if, if you've read it or heard it, to, to the companion book starts out with a, a woman who reflected to me that when she looks back at her sort of journals from the last year, um, they're pretty similar and, uh, and that I think it's a great question to be asking, um, where am I going? Where do I want to go? Um, and this idea that who I want to be is a reflection of who I already am. Henry now said it beautifully in the, the, the epigraph, the beginning of this part. Um, we can only long to be that, which to some extent we already are and probably have buried underneath the surface. And so asking that question, who I am, um, is, in many ways, similar to saying, who do I want to be? They're the same question. Jade writes intense. You mentioned that the true self is pushed down partially by resilience. In the armed forces, they preach resiliency since it can be a difficult job. Yeah, I, you know, um, one of the things that I talk about in Lovable is that it's actually resilient to develop a false self, right? I mean, imagine, you're, imagine going through middle school, showing your true self to everybody, and having uh, no, no way to protect that true self when people begin to make fun of it, bully it, um, cyber bully it these days, there's something resilient about saying, nope, you all don't get to do this to me anymore. Um, I'm taking me and I'm putting myself away for a while so that it, I, I can't continue to take on wounds. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a normal process, it's healthy. Um, but if we do it for too long and we begin to do it with everybody, um, then we never get the experience of revealing ourselves and being seen and experiencing true belonging. And we slowly, gradually, over time, we get ourselves confused. We think our false self is our true self, and we lose a sense of connection to the true self altogether. Um, so that's what we want to do today is we want to begin to um, stop pouring all of our energy and effort into maintaining the false self that we created out of a sense of resilience and begin to reconnect and put that energy into the true self. Jade writes, I wonder if we focused on something other than resilience or double it with something like therapy as well. Will our service members be better off? Boy, that's a that's a topic for a whole, we could do a whole, not just a podcast episode, but a whole podcast about how to uh, best care for the souls of people who um, have to put their souls away for a while to protect um, people. That's, uh, you know, we're... Um, this, that's an intense question and a, um, a conversation that we probably don't have space here for today, but is a, is a good one to be asking. And I, Jade, I would encourage you, I, I hear your heart for that. Um, and if that is something that you feel passionate about, um, what I hear is your soul saying, I'm intrigued by that. I want to dig into that. I want to think about that. Um, who knows? That might be part of what you're here to do. So um, thanks, for, thanks for sharing it. Joy writes, I just took a deep sigh of relief after listening to that. Now the challenge is to sift through what is truly me in my life and what keeps pushing me down. Thanks for starting us on this journey. 
Um, yeah, Joy, and you know, I would reiterate that the stuff that is pushing you down isn't bad stuff. That at one point it was probably healthy, strong, resilient stuff, stuff you needed to do to be safe and to be protected. But it's you're you're, you're listening to this because it's outlasted its usefulness. Um, it's not it's not what you need anymore. You need to be reconnecting with your your true self. Julia writes, I'm mulling about ego as protection in relation to this week's reading. Also had a peaceful walk this morning, a series of 85 to 90 degree days giving into a 60 degree morning. Nice to have. Um, Julie, a couple things there, you know, you're, you're, so Julie used the language of ego. And uh, for those folks who have read Lovable, you'll understand that I use the, the phrases false self and ego interchangeably that I see the ego as the sort of protective mechanism that we develop to protect our true self once we've begun to believe it's not good enough for the world. Um, and so in this podcast, probably I will use those terms interchangeably as well, the false self and the ego. And we had ex- exactly the same. Julie, I don't, I don't know if I know where you're from, but here in Chicago, uh, it's been 85, 90 for like a week and a half. And the cooling today was like a, a welcome return to to some normalcy. It was lovely. Shelley writes, your words and insights are an answer to my own prayer. It brings happy tears to hear that there are others that feel the same. True connections. Absolutely, Shelley. I mean, the the shame that we experience early in life, one of the, the main byproducts of that is a belief that somehow we're alone in our brokenness, right? We look out at the world and we see everybody's false self, which looks pretty well put together. And we think, Oh no, I'm the only one. Um, but you're not. You're here today, is, according to the Facebook Live numbers, you're here with at least 20 to 30 people um, who are all uh, courageous enough to to say openly in public, I, I want to work on this stuff too. I'm, I, I want to rediscover who I am. So you are most definitely not, not alone. And we are just a fraction of the people in the world today who are working on this. There's There's beautiful stuff happening in the world. Let's see. April writes, I've read Lovable twice now. Great to hear of these practical applications. Need some tips for my morning practice. Want to embody the concepts. So why don't we uh, use that as an opportunity to get into the, um, the practice for the week? I'll read the practice for the week and give us a chance to discuss that as well. And I will do my best to circle back then and pick up um, additional comments and questions. I don't want to miss any. Um, but uh, it seems like uh, you just provided us the segue into the, the remainder of week one. So let's get into that, okay? Week one practice. Doing is the enemy of becoming. Often we stay busy, so we don't have to stay present to ourselves. There are countless forms of distracting activities, from work to eating, from shopping to watching television, from solving problems in the world to solving problems in our head, from socializing to social media. Thus, recognizing who we already are begins simply with a cessation of our doing. This can be very difficult to do, ironically, so it can help to have something to focus on while we do it. Let's begin with your breath. This week, spend the first 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes of every day doing nothing but focusing on your breath. Find a quiet and comfortable place to do so. When you're ready, turn your attention to your breath. Select one place in your body where the breathing sensations are most vivid your nostrils, stomach, or chest, for instance. As you breathe, attend to the many sensations there. When your mind wanders, as it will certainly do, simply notice whatever mental activity it wandered to and then return your attention to the breath. By doing so, you will be practicing doing nothing. At times, this will feel tedious and boring and useless. 
over time, however, it can change everything. Now, I want to say a little bit more about this, um, this practice and uh, respond to your thoughts and questions about it. So first of all, I know it can, it can be a little disconcerting to, to therapy clients to come in and, and find out that my first recommendation is spending 10 to 20 minutes a day breathing. It sounds like it's not going to do a whole lot. Um, this practice is a practice that, that we Western psychologists and, uh, and doctors have begun to borrow from more Eastern traditions where mindfulness and meditation are a more consistent part of life. Um, and uh, I want to demystify the whole thing. All right. I want to. So when we say uh, meditative breathing, what are we talking about? Meditation is very simple, okay? It's, it's not, it's not uh, too mysterious. Meditation is choosing something to focus on, becoming aware when your mind wanders from that thing, and then returning your attention to that thing. That's, that's the gist of it. Um, and so when we talk about mindful breathing or meditative breathing, we're saying we've chosen the breath as a point of focus. We're going to notice when our mind wanders from the breath, and we're going to bring our attention back to the breath, and and it's and it's pretty simple. What's not simple about it is all of the stuff that you'll you'll think, feel, um, experience while you're doing it. And this is one of the dangers of of sort of taking this practice and introducing it into sort of the Western mindset. Is and I hear this all the time. Um, so if I so if I practice meditative breathing or mindful breathing, I'll feel peaceful. Um, and my answer is always no you'll feel for the first time what you actually feel. It may not be peaceful at all. Um, you might be bored. You might be frustrated. You might have sadness well up, uh, grief. You might hear of the voice of shame right away. Um, you might be angry. You might discover that you're angry at somebody because you'll be focusing on the breath and all of a sudden this, this thought or feeling will pop up in your mind and you'll notice it and you'll do your best not to get caught up in it. You'll do your best to let it go and you'll return your attention to the breath for 10 minutes at the beginning and end of the day. So the goal here is not to, to have another achievement, to do something else, to, to create a certain experience. The goal is to be present to whatever experience is happening within you and in doing so not have to be doing anything in the moment except being present. Um, doing <laughs> is the enemy of becoming. Um, doing is the enemy of being. Um, so we just want to cultivate a, one space in your life at the beginning and the end of the day where you don't have to do anything at all. In fact, the task is to not. Um, so that's it. It's that, it's that simple, um, but it's not easy because of all the stuff that's going to pull your mind and your, your heart in a ton of different directions. So I want to tune into some comments here. Uh, well, Carlotta writes, you're a godsend, especially in this moment in time of universal confusion. It's difficult to grasp what is real and not what just appears in an Instagram life. Um, well, Carlotta, I really appreciate that. Um, I'm honored to hear you say that. Uh, I, I think what you're saying is it's nice to have a space here <laughs> where we can uh, talk about what is real and not wonder if the um you know what filter was placed on the image <laughs> there's there's no no filters here so um i am happy to provide that space i benefit from it too deb right so timely i just retired after 30 years and i'm so ready to let the false self go i'm so thankful to have the time to just be and to get to know me yes i've been taking care of others i'm assuming in your work is what you're saying deb and um, and yes, uh, it is absolutely not selfish to take care of oneself. In fact, when when you're taking care of yourself in this way, 
what it does is it gives rise to an urge and it gives you the energy for taking care of others again. It's the only sustainable way to care for others is to be taking care of yourself. Now, in my faith tradition, for instance, you'll see it uh, in the Christian, uh, in the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, you'll see that he's constantly in this rhythm of going away and caring for himself before he goes out and cares for other people again. It's it's one of the most consistent themes of his stories. Um, and so, yeah, what would Jesus do? He would take care of himself um, and, uh, and then use that as the ground upon which he can stand and take care of everybody else. So Deb, take care of yourself. Heather, between the year we are born and the year we die is a dash. I'm trying to make that dash meaningful. Doing this helps. Boy, that is a great way to say it, Heather. By the way, I got to say, I just love all the poets and word people out there who you may not even identify as such, but um, you have such beautiful ways of summarizing things. Life is a dash. Uh, what we're doing here at the beginning of these four months of listening is we're just going to try not to dash anymore. Just in a few spaces in life, we're going to try to slow down, be mindful, and, uh, and, and bring our attention fully to bear on what's going on inside of us. So yes, let's quit dashing. Julie writes, tomorrow will be my 200th day of making a point to just breathe. There's a lot of variety in what comes up and my ability to watch versus getting sucked into it. Julie, thank you for that feedback. 200th day of making a point of just breathing. Um, and so Julie's pointing out that you will be amazed by what comes up in that space. And I point out some of the difficult things that will come up, but I, I don't know there. I don't know if I've laughed as hard as sometimes where I'm in the middle of a, of a breathing meditation and just the most ridiculous, bizarre thought comes to mind. Uh, and there's just the sense of, oh my gosh, that's in me. And that's hilarious. Um, and joy will come up as well. Uh, and you will have peacefulness begin to, to arise within you as everything else starts to subside. Um, so there is a huge variety, uh, ranging all the way from sometimes the most ecstatic experiences to the most difficult experiences that can happen in the midst of, of a mindful exercise like that. Um, and yes, our ability to watch uh, varies as well. What you'll discover is that you think, okay, I'm sitting down for another 10 minutes of breathing. It'll just be the same thing. But as you become more mindful, you discover that every breathing um, session is different, right? As Julie's pointing out that, wow, this morning I had no trouble paying attention to my breath, but tonight my mind is going in a million different directions. Um, and so you begin to notice the subtle and sometimes not so subtle changes in, in how you're able to attend. Um, and so try to notice this week the variety um, that happens within that time and not just the, the repetitive things that you're doing. Julie writes more, it's been worthwhile and helpful spreading more mindful moments into other times of getting sucked into my thoughts in unhelpful ways. Yeah, you, you're, you're, you're raising a great point, Julie, that you know when we talk about beginning to redeem this experience of shame, we're saying that there's been a voice of shame speaking within us for most of our lives, um, and we have gotten swept along with it. It's sort of become the narrator. We just assume it's telling us the, the truth about who we are. And so this practice is also about learning how to be able to step outside of that thought stream and be able to, to witness it um, and question it if we need to. Um, and this breathing meditation can begin be a way to, to begin to really um, lay the groundwork for doing so. Bobby writes, thank you so much for explaining that this practice won't necessarily lead to immediate full-on peace. Not sure what I was expecting last week when I began it. <laughs> so everything is helpful. Yes. Um, that's uh, that's that's our that's sort of our modern mindset. 
you know, um, we, we all kind of expect that if someone is giving us something helpful, it will help us quickly. Um, and as I say in the introduction to, to the companion book, um, I, I didn't do a daily um, sort of um, companion book because we need the space to cultivate these experiences. We need to be able to slow down and have them and not expect immediate returns. Like if, if you did breathing for one day and then we moved on to the next exercise, I think the vast majority of us would be disappointed because the kinds of experiences we're cultivating here, they're not going to happen overnight. So, um, so yeah, Bobby, give yourself permission to, to not feel an immediate sort of, as we call it, benefit from it, right? Um, just give yourself permission to be attentive to whatever is happening. Uh, one thing I'll often tell people is the only way you can fail at mindfulness and meditation is not doing it, right? Like if you do, if for 10 minutes you practice mindful breathing and your mind wanders a thousand times and you bring it back a thousand times, it was a success. That's not a failure. Uh, and so give yourself the grace to have the same kind of mind that all of us other human beings have, which is so easily distractible and drawn away. Dika, Dika uh, writes, wow, I like that. Um, good. I, I think, um, and maybe I should have front loaded that permission, right? Um, to, to know that this is, as soon as we think that we have to make our mindful breathing practice successful, we are turning it into another thing to do, another thing to achieve. And so we just have to protect it from, from that sort of mentality. Um, and, and remember that our, our only job is to do it. Um, and our only job is to be present to however it goes. Um, and I don't suggest it in this week's practice, but you might make just a, you know, start a small journal that's, you know, uh, week one, day one, uh, first morning, um, hated it. <laughs> uh, it was so frustrating, felt like I was wasting time, was thinking all of the things I should be doing, um, you know, kids need breakfast, uh, uh, you know, I got bills to pay. Uh, give yourself the space to just have those experiences and not feel like it needs to be something different at first. Dika writes, falling a thousand times and coming back. That's right. Rising back up, continuing the meditation, continuing the mindfulness. Um, and uh, if, if, if our mind didn't do that, if it didn't wander away that much, we wouldn't need to be mindful to begin with, right? So that's all part of the process. Heather writes, for those of you have been doing this for a while, do you find it easier to stay in the breath after a period of time? It's a great question. Like, you know, after five minutes, does it get easier to uh, maintain your, your attention to the breath? April writes, yeah, that's a good point. Often I feel that sense of failure at the end of my attempt of morning breathing, yoga, breathing. Um, yeah, so um, that sense of failure is part of the experience. Attend to it. Attend to the uh, pressure you put on yourself in any given moment of any day to be achieving something, getting something out of it, doing something you know that's considered valuable. Pay attention. That's all. That's all part of our inner experience. Um, I will respond, um, Heather, to your question. Uh, do we find it easier to stay in the breath after a period of time? Uh, I will tell you that my experience is that over the course of maybe months and years, as you're, you're, lit you're literally rewiring your brain to learn how to be present. Okay, When we do functional MRIs of people who have... Uh, uh, sort of a consistent mindfulness practice, we see that the frontal lobe, that part of the brain that's in charge of planning, organizing, worrying, all that, you know, very human stuff begins to quiet down. 
and so, yes, over time, you're actually rewiring your brain. You're making it, uh, you're making it a little bit easier to, to be present because your mind is not going to be tugging you in so many different directions. But I will also say we go through seasons of life and there are days here, seven, eight years after beginning to practice mindful breathing that I feel like I'm a beginner. <laughs> it's day one all over again. Um, and, and, and the reaction to that is what begins to really change us to be able to go, Oh, I'm not starting at square one. I'm starting at today because today is a different day and that's okay. Um, and to be able to give yourself the grace and compassion to struggle as much as you did at the beginning means that in a way you're progressing, um, in a whole, at a whole different level. So Jade writes, perhaps an odd question, but what's the best position to breathe, meditate in? Good question. Sit cross-legged, lay down. Is it just based off of preference? Um, great question. Most, um, most people would recommend um, that you actually sit in a position of awareness. The goal is not to fall asleep, right? So the goal is not to get into bed, lay there, and eventually drift off. The, the goal is to actually increase your sense of awareness. So you want to sit in a position that increases your sense of alertness. So most instructors will recommend sitting up in a, in a straight back chair um, or sitting cross-legged, uh, you know, on a cushion or a soft surface. Um, any position in which your body can sort of represent alertness and awakeness. Um, I know a lot of instructors will recommend um, doing a mindful breathing exercise with your eyes open again in order to, to cultivate awareness. Um, I find that I have enough going on inside to tug my mind away that I don't need to have my eyes open as well, so I will close my eyes. Um, but the, 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 the important thing is that you are um, you're creating an environment for yourself uh, that increases your sense of awareness both of what's going on inside of you and if necessary, what's going on around you if it's distracting to you. So um, that's the principle that you want to strive for. And everybody might be a little bit different in terms of the environment that helps them do that. It's a great question. Julie writes, the first 10 minutes can be more difficult, Heather. Things quiet down after a while. As I've kept practicing, it's gotten easier to let the thinking go quickly. It depends on the day, too. Yeah, thanks for that, Julie. Um, yeah, uh, if you at the end of your ten minutes begin to discover that your 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 thinking mind, your problem solving mind, your worrying mind, your critical mind is just beginning to quiet down, don't sell yourself short. Continue continue with it if you can, um, and maybe even leave a little bit of extra time in your schedule so that you can do that if you if you want to give yourself a little bit of an, that experience of what it's like to um, to experience a mind that is is beginning to settle down. I'm going to wrap up the discussion here for today, uh, but we'll be continuing it next week. This isn't the end. It's just the beginning. Um, so next week will be week two of the year of listening, loving, and living. It's entitled Rest is Revolutionary. So next week we'll build upon this breathing practice by intentionally cultivating spaces of rest in our life. Okay? So until then, uh, may you breathe and may you enjoy simply being. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable Podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb 
and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. <laughs>